For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Good evening. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur presented by F.L. Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar and filling in for F.L.'s Josh Miller tonight is F.L.'s Michael Newton. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, Dan. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. It's always so, nice to be here and uh, when I get to fill in when he gets to travel. Yes, and I'm sorry I missed last week's show as well. We had uh, a couple of young entrepreneurs on the program that I would love to chat with, uh, but Josh is off this week and he is, uh, is he on a trade mission this time or just on just playing hooky? He'll tell you it's a trade mission, but I'm not <laughs> sure that Vegas is considered a trade mission. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You can probably find a conference. Certainly time, so. certainly based on the uh, the luck he was having at the tables, I don't think so. Nice. Uh, so this evening on the uh, program, we're going to talk about a very, very cool local company um, that is developing software to help fashion retailers uh, very easily fit their clients. And uh, this is sort of the wave in the future, I think, of, uh, of fashion retailing. And we'll talk to Elizabeth Stefanka of Stefanka. Uh, that's coming up on the program. We'll also talk to Peter Moraitis, tax manager at FL, about uh, mergers and acquisitions predominantly? Yeah, bringing other people into uh, shareholders' agreements, bringing people in as uh, sometimes employees, uh, phantom plans, you know, a couple of the, a couple of those things when you want to try and do something with your, uh, with your employees and maybe a bit different, or alternatively going to market and trying to bring in uh, either a financial partner or somebody else. Great. So we'll have uh, some entrepreneurial news uh, in uh, just a moment as well. But first, uh, we've been starting the shows uh, um, by talking about sort of entrepreneurial challenges in general, yeah. some of the ones that I face, that my team face, and that, that our, our, our extended family faces. And so the, the question I wanted to run by you, Michael, this week is um, is on growing. And, and, you know, I like to think in terms of the long, long term and uh, and expanding the business. And, and expansion is is tricky especially when you're expanding sort of beyond your core offerings and your core expertise. Mm -hmm. So my question is, is it better than long-term to think about reinvesting in the organization uh, to uh, in consulting or in intensive training to build that new expertise and to expand? Or uh, is the, the better decision eventually to go the mergers and acquisitions route? Well, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. I mean, first, the discussion of whether I want to go to market to bring in another partner, is, is it becomes a cultural one. Uh, I'm certainly going to hit the ground running much quicker by bringing in a partner than I would by trying to develop internal talent. So if I, if I need instant gratification, it's one way to go. The problem is many times there's a cultural misfit at the end of the day, and a lot of people jump into, uh, jump into an M&A type arrangement for the wrong reason. And I think there's got to be a lot of pre-work done before you decide who you're going to, excuse the expression, jump into bed with, because you know at the end of the day, you are going to be stuck with them one way or another, and getting rid of them afterwards is not an easy task. However, you know on the internal side... I don't think reinvesting is an option. I think reinvesting is a must, regardless of which path you go. Uh, there's no doubt that you know you've got to be investing in your people constantly. If you look at the marketplace, there is no doubt that if you're not going to reinvest in your people, somebody else is going to. And just to stay competitively, competitively ahead of the game, you're going to have no choice. So I, I think you have to you have to look at a strategy which involves both. I wouldn't discount uh, the acquisition mode, but I think you have to be a little more particular when you're looking at the acquisition mode because you can find yourself uh, really making a mess of your culture. I much prefer the acquisition to the merge side. I think the acquisition, if I set it properly up front, I can control the culture, I can control the fit. Whereas if I'm merging, now I'm taking you know, enterprises of similar sizes, it could go really bad. <laughs> 
For entrepreneurs who do the who do go the acquisition route, are there some ground rules or, or basics to look out for in terms of uh, of um, I suppose finding those uh, those reference points uh, that could uh, that could lead to a more cohesive culture for the new firm? Yeah, I think the key is why. I think everybody needs to ask themselves that question: Why at the beginning, before they get into an acquisition, are they looking to grow? Are they looking to add a new product line? Are they looking to acquire because there's good people? It's easier to acquire people already in existence than it is to try and go out and hire one by one. What What is the goal behind the acquisition? And I think that if you don't ask that question first, you're going to find yourself asking yourself, why did I, somewhere down the road, okay, and probably sooner than later. But I think the key is making sure how it's going to fit. Am I geographically? Am I bringing them into my organization in the same physical space? Am I starting a new different thing? Each different answer to the why comes with a different set of problems. Uh, and, and I'll have to be uh, investigated or, or, or thought through prior to jumping into the process. All right, some other entrepreneurial news for this week. Uh, the Liberal government uh, planning to increase the capital gains inclusion rate in the upcoming budget. So this is something that's uh, that's a possibility anyway. Um, what are the implications for this, Mike? Well, they haven't said they're going to yet. This has kind of bounced its way around in the last couple of budgets, uh, never finding its way to the table, though I think the, uh, the, the concerns or the problems right now is whether we're going to continue with a 50% inclusion rate on capital gains or whether it's going to go up to two-thirds or 75%, uh, actually even listen to uh, something this morning on the Business News Network that, that was talking about an 80% inclusion rate. Uh, what does it mean? It means there's less money left on the table at the end of the day, obviously. Uh, the goal is to try and once again balance out the uh, the income levels. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I think you have to be careful how you do this. Uh, certainly in the, in the business environment, in the small business environment, you do not want to discourage investment. Uh, and I think if you leave less money on the table for an entrepreneur when he sells his business, he's maybe less likely to go and reinvest somewhere else. There's always the angle in the stock market and the inclusion rate. So, you know, I, it's it's up in the air. I'm kind of hoping they stay away from it. And I think right now, south of the border, with all the all the joy that's going on with uh, with Mr. Trump, it'll be interesting to see just how the uh, the liberals decide to uh, to play the game in terms of trying to stay competitive within the U.S. marketplace if Trump himself is looking at dropping tax rates. By increasing capital gains, inclusion rates are actually increasing tax rates. So there might be a much bigger disparity between the Canada and the U.S. market again. And if Canada does go this route, uh, do you think it's time that entrepreneurs or uh, or people who this this impacts in general uh, start looking at shifting around their 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 assets right away? And what do you mean by shifting around? Or just, just reorganizing the way that they're... Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that people are looking at before the budget is whether there's there's a need to start crystallizing some gains just in case. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that uh, an immediate uh, angle is is necessary, but I think everybody who's sitting with any kind of sizable game should at least be looking at opportunities that, that exist. Another issue you wanted to talk about is how to manage upward an employee's responsibility, not just to be managed, but to uh, to develop to help develop that manager-employee relationship. This is from an interesting bl- a blog on Huffington Post. Um, even sort of taking the initiative in many cases to rebuild that relationship with the manager. Um, is it? Uh, w- would you say it's fifty-fifty in terms of the responsibility of maintaining that relationship, or is the person in the position of power? Uh, the one who should uh, do the grunt work in terms of maintaining that that cooperation. Well, I think the sooner you get it closer to 50-50 in terms of the effort is the sooner you're going to try and balance the relationship. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we've read so many things about how to manage our team, how to manage employees. Uh, we read very little in terms of what it's like to be managed and what your accountability is in the role 
of being managed by someone else. Uh, and I do think it's a two-way street. I think any successful relationship requires, uh, you know, requires two people to be interacting. Uh, I don't think that means that you succumb to anybody's, uh, you know, process or, or, or approach. But I think it's very important to understand who you're working for, what makes them tick as much as they need to know what makes you tick. Uh, and I think everybody's approach, uh, if you're working underneath two or three or four people, you need to know that everybody probably has a different approach. So I think there's an equal responsibility in that relationship to to make it work. Uh, unfortunately, I think we live in a bit of an environment where uh, the sense of entitlement uh, some days means, uh, you know, you've got to cater to me as an employee. And uh, hopefully that we'll see a little bit of change in that exercise. I think certainly long term without some kind of two way street, it, it just doesn't work out. There are probably people listening who might have the boss from hell. What advice would you give them in terms of uh, communicating that their managerial styles could use some improvement without, of course, putting their, their their jobs in jeopardy? Well, I think you have to look at where that person above you stands in, in, in the ranking. And obviously, if it's the owner's son or daughter, uh, you're going to come at it very differently than a third party that's been hired. Uh, many cases, which you'll you'll try and do is if your immediate boss has let's call it some issues, uh, if there's a way to manage around them to above the next boss. I mean, one of the things that they talk about in, in terms of managing upward is knowing your boss's boss. You know, and that exercise along the way is, is going to help you try and deal with the situation. Uh, I would be very surprised if, you know, the boss's boss didn't know that, you know, that, that his underling had some issues as well. And what about if you're the, the manager and dealing with an uncooperative employee, uh, what are some tactics to get to get them a bit more involved in, uh, in, in their own improvement? Well, there's two ways to look at it. I think the first is, is this employee a toxic employee? And if that, if that is the case, then you're going to have to, you know, respond accordingly. Uh, and you're going to have to work around that accordingly. If it's just a question of fit, if it's a question of culture, if it's a question of, you know, the person's going through a rough period in their life, then I think, you know, you have that moral obligation to try and make it work. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, when you're, when you're looking at these situations, everyone is, is particular. Uh, and I think uh, the more time you spend trying to understand what goes on in each other's head, the easier it is to manage the situation. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people try to use the cookie cutter approach with every employee or every boss that say, hey, it worked, it worked with you, so it's going to work with the next person. I just don't think that works. Certainly, the, certainly in the higher, uh, you know, if you look in a professional firm where you've got highly educated individuals all the way up the ranks, there's going to be a very different, uh, very different approach. Coming up on today's Entrepreneur, we'll take a look at the future of fashion retailing with Elizabeth advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL's Michael Newton with you in for Josh Miller. And uh, Michael, on the program over the last few years, Josh and I have been talking about the evolution of retail and how mm -hmm. retailers can adapt to new technology and, and fight and uh, fight the online wave and, and sort of remain competitive in that atmosphere. And our guest this evening is a great example of that, Elizabeth Stefanka of Stefanka, a software company that helps fashion retailers um, try to fit their clients using 3D imagery. And uh, Elizabeth, welcome to CJD. Thank you. Uh, so very cool product. I'd, I'd like you to explain it a bit more in detail in a second, but first just tell us generally uh, about yourself and about uh, about the company, Stefanka. So uh, Stefanka, as you mentioned, is really uh, fit clothing recommendation softwares, uh, which started from an idea like quite a long time ago, uh, I would say more than 10 years ago right now, 
I was thinking that we have to find a way to put back the client uh, at the center of the consumption process. So basically using the measurements of a body was just an obvious uh, result and solution in order to fit better people. So, um, well, my background, I studied in the fashion design when I was 17 years old. I was a dropout. Yeah, <laughs> I, I found out that I didn't want to sue any clothing, but I definitely wanted to have an impact in that industry. So then I went for um, undergrad in consumer science. So this is really all the process of analyzing the behavior of uh, consumers in order to offer them better uh, solutions. And then I finished a master in international business with a uh, specialization in technological entrepreneurship at HSE Montreal. Can you explain how the product works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we have different kind of uh, product. The main one, which is the most uh, known, is the uh, fit room, which is the interactive 3D fitting room. So we convert the fitting rooms into uh, those uh, scanning tools where we analyze body shape through uh, 3D imagery. So it's really just creating a kind of mapping over um, the body shape. From that, we our software analyze the dimensions of a of a body shape, also the volume, and uh, all the style related to each body type. And then our matching algorithm find the best fit in the uh, catalog of products. So this is one product, but the other one, which is also um, more accessible for any kind of retailers, and also we're working for an online solution, is um, um, manual entry uh, measurement. So it's a little bit like having your uh, tailor in store, but a virtual tailor, which can uh, really take your measures and then uh, add it in the software and find out within a few seconds the best fit. Are you working closely with the suppliers then? Is that uh, is it the retail store that you're working with or the actual suppliers to the retail store? Both. Okay. So to give you an example, we're working with um, vertically uh, integrated uh, brands mm -hmm. which can uh, produce their own uh, their own clothing and we're also working with uh, wholesale uh, stores. So stores are going to um, who going to have independent brands that they're going to uh, sell in their stores. So um, you can imagine I'm working with the retailer in order to create a personalized experience in the store, but I'm also dealing with their uh, suppliers, manufacturers, who are going to be in France, in Italy, uh, in Asia. So I'm gathering informations, which are numerical data of the product with once they are sewn together. This is existing data, but no one have tapped in. It's just common sense of using those kind of information, those kind of data, and to integrate it into our matching algorithms. And what happens to the data once it's, once it's there? I mean, are, are you storing the data for future use for these individuals or is everything refreshed every time because Lord knows there's days where, you know, <laughs> I might not have the same dimensions I had a few weeks ago. Totally. Well, uh, on the short term, it's really just gathering the, the, those data. But indeed, on the longer term, there's a, there's a business intelligence to, uh, to be created from uh, artificial intelligence based on those, uh, those data. So, yeah. We'll talk more about the future of retailing, especially in the fashion industry, with Elizabeth Stefanka coming up next. personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
We're back with Elizabeth Stefanka of Stefanka, a software firm that helps uh, fashion retailers properly fit their clients. So definitely, um, uh, Elizabeth, adding to the to the in-store experience at a time when we're all shopping more and more online. But also, uh, you're in the data collection business. Tell us about uh, about that sort of side of the product. Well, um, what we've developed is a very specific expertise which analyze body types and then convert it to our matching algorithms, which uh, then find in a catalog of product, of clothing product, the best fit. So this is really the expertise which we've developed and which we've been applying also for retailers, but for manufacturers into the uniform uh, industry, which is a very wider and very larger uh, data set of product. Okay, you were mentioning you were down at the CES show in Vegas uh, a little while yeah. ago. Uh, yeah. Unlike uh, Josh, who's actually not working, <laughs> you were working. So, um, Hi, Josh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess the, the question is, is how did that go over? I mean, you, you had mentioned you had talked to some, you know, very high-profile uh, clothing companies, and I think you kind of wowed them. So. Absolutely. Um, well, one thing which is very interesting for any startups, any entrepreneur, if you really prepare yourself to go to the CS, it's worth it. Uh, we had the booth and um, we had we had people from executive level coming to our booth because they've seen the description in the in the pamphlet and they were very curious to understand how we would uh, reinvent the retail. And so through the discussions, they would just tell us that it's common sense what we are doing is just common sense and it should be out there but no one have have created a kind of business model which uh, offer these solutions and um, also what one thing which is very important for me uh, and because behind our our business there's a mission which is really to help everyone to find the best fit it's not only a wow effect we're going to talk about the um, the fitting room which is cool and it's trendy but yes this is a wow thing that retailers can bring in their stores but also it's all the value related to those data that we're collecting behind which is really worth it and um, you know for a retailer it means indeed an experience in store for the consumers it's a personalized experience so they're going to feel more um, loyal to that brand since they're going to be sure that they're going to always have the the best fit and they won't buy a, a clothing which wouldn't fit and they will return so for the retailer it means that it goes on for the the returns also uh, so yeah I would have been said at the CS that we really bring uh, added value to our product Coming up, we'll talk more with Elizabeth Stefanka of Stefanka, and we'll also get into uh, to mergers and acquisitions with Peter Moretis later in the program, a tax manager at FL. Uh, we'll get to some marketing uh, issues next and uh, and talk more about the uh, the fashion business here on today's Entrepreneur at 7.30. Consult FL Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL's Michael Newton, in for Josh Miller this week, and we're chatting with Elizabeth Stefanka of Stefanka, software, appropriately titled software company, uh, that helps fashion retailers properly fit their clients. And uh, Elizabeth, tell us about the your startup phase. Um, you conceived of this idea pretty early. You were still, I believe, in a teenager when you thought, this, thought of this idea. How did you get it off the ground, and how did you get out of the startup phase and uh, into a space where we're now multinationals are taking interest in you? Uh, at the very beginning, it was, uh, well, in the 2000 beginning of uh, the millennial. So um, I would say I didn't have any idea very specific how we could 
what kind of technology we could use, but I had the um, more the final result in mind. And um, in 2013-14, it was coming obvious for me that we had to bridge um, the 3D technologies with the fashion industry and bond those two worlds together in order to um, to get a, a synergy which can be successful in order to find the best fit. How did how did you how did you build a team? Where did you where did you find everyone? Uh, uh, well, when you start a business, it's always one of the most important and critical aspects bringing up your team together. And I'm quite fortunate; I have an amazing team. Uh, everyone around me, uh, I really appreciate their work, and I think they really enjoy also the culture. I started by finding people um, through the uh, district tree, which is an incubator into uh, Concordia University. Okay. So that was the first place where I started to get a team together at that time at the very beginning of the few first months of the business already right at the beginning I had a team of 13 people uh, but for sure this team is not employees it, they are more students in the context of studies uh, bringing their ex small expertise uh, within the organization but it's quite interesting because uh, it brings you like so much different perspective mm -hmm. so it's it's really worth it for a startup to go through the incubator phase uh, into uh, universities you uh, you've done quite a bit of research and development obviously along mm -hmm. the way so implications with NSERC and uh, you know the R&D tax credits mm -hmm. uh, if you want to discuss a little bit in terms of how that's helped move things forward <laughs> well you, you definitely needed when you have a new business model which is not existing there's no uh any recipe already out there how to build that kind of business model you definitely have to pass through that r&d phase and make sure that what you're creating is quite solid um so the way we started out we um we got funding from the uh, NR uh, ncr i'm sorry the yeah. national um research Council, um, which helped us to pay uh, the CRIME, which is the Center of Research uh, Innovation uh, in Montreal. So we really searched out for um, people with backgrounds in physics in order to make sure that the software we're developing for the volumetric recognition uh, were very speciali specialized people in order to create what we are looking for. So I, I did part of my stuff with people from out of the business with very precise expertise but most of the people are um, software developers in inside the business okay and what uh, in terms of uh, uh, marketing have you done in the last few years to sort of put yourself on the map internationally you're getting press all around the world what's what's your strategy to, to market well, I would say we are kind of, uh, there's serendipity into that. So there's kind of luck and timing. Um, we we won the contest of um, Aux Entreprendre, which is a national level contest. So we won like the local version after the local uh, phase, the regional and then the national. This is the contest where 55,000 people, 1,000 uh, startups and projects applied so we won the very first prize within everything and this brought us uh from the start uh very wide um coverage media coverage so i would say this this was the kind of spin-off and the the, the the same time that i got this prize uh like few days before i was in the uh, newspaper uh, journal les affaires which was also as a leader of quebec inc of tomorrow 
uh, personality. All this brought us to have a very uh, an authority in the um, in the media coverage. And one of the things that I find very interesting is that we had a very brief conversation before, and your 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 sense of accountability to your employees, to your team, and that role of being uh, socially conscious uh, as as an owner, which we don't always hear very often. Maybe you can talk to that a little bit, because I'm sure that sets to sets the tone in terms of culture within your office. Yeah, absolutely. It it set the tones in my office, and that's quite interesting because at the beginning, when you start, uh, when you start to be an entrepreneur, you have so much a product in mind, and then on the on your journey, you find out that you can have a real social impact and economical impact on on your surrounding, which which is amazing. Uh, so totally, I feel accountable for. Uh, I'll I'll give you an example. I have an employee who came from Iran and she's a very talented person in um, software development. And right from the beginning, she wouldn't negotiate her salary. So for me, I felt like I, I needed to to tell her that she should go back home, think about it, and come back like with a wrench. And, and, and even yeah. though that was going to come out of your pocket from the negotiating side, that was the mentoring and, and the tone, I guess, you're trying yes, to set absolutely. for people. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to understand that there's there's still differences between women and men on the labor market. We don't react the same way. And women will, most of the time, like there's studies who show that uh, a woman gonna wait to be eighty percent uh, qualified to apply to a job, and guys gonna wait to be thirty percent qualified to apply to a job, and most of the time, um, women gonna attribute their success or uh, what they've been creating on the other surrounding them. It's more like external uh, reason, but the guys gonna say I'm awesome. So it's there's always a kind of gap, and as as a CEO, as a decision maker, we have to think, uh, we have to be conscious about it and also try to bring it this gap and explain to people that they can, to women, that they can do exactly the same process than, than men. What about the diversity uh, of your team fueling research and development? Uh, your product uh, could be widely applied or in stores, retail store locations around the world. Um, but have you caught those moments when you, you know, when someone on your team may have sort of brought a different cultural perspective to the product? Uh, yeah, I started right from the beginning with the team, which is very dis diversified. Uh, we have people coming from almost every continent in the team. So that's quite impressive since we are still a very small structure. We're only seven employees. It's coming a little bit up in the in the next uh, weeks. Um, so for me, it's like so important. You build your success on different perspective and understanding those those different perspectives. And when you think about it, you can just build something better. I think the, the Montreal marketplace, certainly in the technology world and in the fashion space, is, is world-renowned for its international flair and, and its international, uh, I guess, intellectual side of things. So clearly you've managed to put that to, uh, to good use in Montreal. Absolutely. We'll be talking about mergers and acquisitions in, in a couple of minutes. Is that something that you see in your future? Well, yes. Since we have a business model which is very innovative and who's going to have a real impact and disrupt the fashion industry, we know that we're already starting to have attention from other businesses approaching us for acquisition, but we are still waiting for the for, for on the further along further on to to get into that process.
Right. So I'm, st- I'm still trying to get over the fact that I'm only 30% qualified for this gig. <laughs> <laughs> so coming up, we'll talk about that, uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, with uh, Peter Moraitis, tax manager at FL. And he'll talk about the process of uh, how to go through this and uh, how to do, uh, of course, due diligence, something, a phrase that comes up often on the program. So that is on the way. But first, it's coming up to 745. We'll also have Elizabeth's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur before the program for is done. So stay tuned for that. FL Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. Welcome back to today's entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL's Mike Newton with you, filling in for Josh Miller. Uh, Coming up, we'll have Elizabeth Stefanka's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. But first, uh, we welcome Peter Moraitis, tax manager at FL to the program. Uh, Welcome, Peter. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And and thanks for talking about the capital gains inclusion rates uh, without me, because that's about all we've been talking about in the tax department <laughs> for the last two weeks, clients calling up, calling us up on those issues. So, Mike, we're going to talk about mergers and acquisitions and uh, and due diligence. First of all, if you are eyeing uh, an acquisition, um, how far in advance before you actually put pen to paper uh, does it take to do a, a proper due diligence? How, how long should you spend looking into the company you're about to acquire? Again, it goes back to the, the topic at the top of the hour when we were talking about the whole discussion of why. So again, if I'm doing this for a very specific reason and I'm looking to say, hey, I'm going to jump into this and I'm going to do this regardless of whatever you find, then obviously your due diligence process is going to be minimal and your accountants and your lawyers are going to be beating you over the head you know, religiously to try and get you to pay attention to things. Um, if, you're, if you're going out and you're doing it on a strategic basis, I mean... Anybody who's got an M&A plan as part of their business plan is always on the lookout. Okay, I, I don't think you, you, you never, you don't wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm going to go to market. You're always looking for an opportunity. Um, but there are some implications. And part of the problems with the implications revolve around some of the tax side. And, and ultimately, you know, if you're a Canadian-controlled private business and you've been getting R&D and there's a lot of Montreal companies who have funded themselves for many years on R&D refundable tax credits, the moment you go to, the, somebody looks at you and, and your status is going to change, you've got some tax issues. And Pete, I think that's one of the things you want to jump so on. this is where specifically in in your type of industry uh where a lot of the knowledge maybe or, or where the, the the capital is maybe outside of canada so whether it's silicon valley or or um or anywhere else around the world uh you find yourself in situations where there could be mergers where they would uh create merge them with their, uh, their own canadian subsidiary um which there wouldn't be any immediate tax consequences if it was done properly However, what happens then is uh, the refundable tax credits, because the company is no longer controlled by a Canadian uh, individual and it's a private company, um, drop in half. Whereas as opposed to getting credits uh, north of 50%, we're talking maybe in the 25 to 30. And more importantly, on the, uh, the credits no longer are refundable. So, so whereas in situations where companies maybe are not profitable at the beginning, uh, so they're not actually paying taxes. So uh, for smaller com- for the CCPCs, as uh, the tax people call it, for these private companies, uh, the government's actually subsidizing their costs, even if they're not actually paying taxes, whereas the larger companies, they only get those credits uh, applied against the actual taxes on their profits they're paying. It's one of the things, too, when you, when you go to do your due diligence process, you have to take this into account. So depending on who you're representing at the end of the day, if I know that we're representing foreign interests, I have to take this into account. I mean, it's going to affect cash flow. 
it's going to affect. So we may put the deal together and structure it in such a way that you've maintained the Canadian controlled private side a little bit longer than you normally would in order to maintain some of these. So these there, exercises. there are a lot of different rules on how control is determined out there. Um, and a lot we you hear a lot of maybe where there's specific types of voting shares, but or uh, options that would give control to these non-residents, and and the government is aware of those, and 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 it's always something you have to look into. So yes, there are ways to plan around this so that the control is retained here in Canada, um, but even stuff that maybe aren't as much as clearly on paper also get looked at in terms of who has the. Um, the, the factual control sometimes yeah. of who's really running the the show. I think you have to be also careful too. We have a tendency in Montreal being a little more insulated than than the, certainly the U.S. VC market. Um, you know, guys that are coming up from Silicon Valley that are going to drop twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars into uh, into a startup to to build. The reality is most of them don't care about R and D tax credits. I mean, at the end of the day, there's so much money on the table. Uh, but this the, is the the, the tax component, Mike. Come on. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, we can, we're going to get into a debate. You rest of you can leave soon. And Pete and I will just go at it here. Um, but that you know, it is something that you have to and you have to know your audience when when you're dealing uh, dealing in that space. Well, how about if uh, if the 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 firm being acquired or, or merged, uh, most of that control then goes elsewhere outside of Canada? How does that affect uh, taxation? Well, so aside from let's say the, the refundable credits, uh, they also lose the uh, small business deduction. So uh, on uh, income of the first half a million dollars, you're talking an extra seven percent more in Quebec. Um, another important factor is that uh, you the company loses the the shareholders the Canadian shareholders lose the ability to claim the capital gains exemption on any future increases because the capital gains exemption is only available to uh, on dispositions of CCPC shares. Um, so that's something where sometimes if you haven't really realized that value, even though you need that VC capital or or, um, or uh, ability to grow the business. You, you're kind of going to lose out on that on part of the crystallizing the tax-free uh, gain. More on mergers and acquisitions, plus Elizabeth Stefanko's one piece of advice for today's With a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. We'll have Elizabeth Stefanka's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in just a moment. But first, Mike, chatting with Peter Moretis, tax manager at FL, about mergers and acquisitions. Uh, can you give us a quick um, a bullet point list, Peter, of, uh, of things that entrepreneurs need to look out for if they are preparing a merger or acquisition? So in situations where, you're, where there's a planned exit or a sale of a company, it's really important to start looking at what is required ahead of time. It's not when there's a deal that's presented that there's any real, real tax planning that can happen. So to be able to benefit from the capital gains exemption, which basically means that somebody does not pay taxes on the first 820-some thousand of capital gain that they get, uh, they need to own the shares for two years. 90% uh, of the assets are active, so it can't be something where there's excess profits that have been accumulating in the company. And they need to have 50% of the assets to be active for the last two years. So it's basically something where you really have to be selling a com the company with, with its operations in it only. Yeah, and I think the, the problem you have is most people only think about an acquisition or a sale with either death or disability. So the thought process of getting there, and I, you know, the one thing that has been proven time and again is if you plan it far enough in advance, not only do you save yourself on the tax side, you actually bring more value to your business. So death, disability, the taxes, anything else we should look out for? 
Well, I think the more time you spend focused, uh, the better your chance you have of of succeeding in, a, in either being bought out or being sold. I mean, the reality is most people that sell, uh, you know, sign a one-year or two-year deal to stay on afterwards. Very few of them ever get to the uh, the conclusion of the contract. There's a little bit of, especially from an entrepreneur who's been around a long time, hard to take, very hard to take instruction from somebody else. Mm. And finally, at the end of the show, let's turn to Elizabeth Stefanka of Stefanka and ask uh, Elizabeth, what is your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur? Well, one advice would be being an entrepreneur is all a question of mindset. Uh, it's your own mindset and the mindset of the people who are going to be surrounding you and your team and further than your team. So being an, an entrepreneur, mostly uh, I would say in the innovative sphere, like any technologies or new business models, you have to be able to s just stand up in any kind of uh, situation. So it's really a question of having the right mindset. And Mike, uh, what's your takeaway from the show tonight? I, I would say diligence and diversity. 100%. And I think, you know, you, you, you see the, the, the two things that, you know, whenever you ask me what my two bullet points are, I mean, it's always the same two. It's, it's passion and execution. And I think you see that from, uh, from Elizabeth in terms of what she's got done. The energy, the passion is there. She's getting things done. Uh, and most entrepreneurs fall down on those four, first two points. So if you can get those, uh, plus you get that mindset, you're, you're already, ahead of the, already ahead of the curve. Thank you very much to Elizabeth Stefanka of Stefanka. Thanks for dropping by. Thanks. And uh, to uh, Peter Moraitis, tax manager at FL as well. And we are back next week on Today's Entrepreneur. Uh, Josh will be back, I believe. Yes, he will. And uh, we will uh, see you then next Monday night at 7 p.m. And uh, every Monday night here on CJD. Today's Thanks. Entrepreneur. Thanks, Dan. Have a good night.